what things in climbing tend to make a bigger difference than you really think and they're items that aren't necessarily trainable or have really well-developed methodology or are just easy ticks that you can sort out immediately just because you saw it in an article or your friend does it in a really obvious way. What are those things that just go a touch under the radar, but really, really matter and make a big difference? And when I say this, when you go through these items, these will be the things that those at the elite, the professionals in our sport, and those that operate at the cutting edge will really pay attention to. And they will nail these things and they'll get them right. And they will have taken years to really perfect each of these areas. This is a two-parter episode. It's 10 things that matter more than you think in climbing performance. And today I'm going to do the first five because they're going to make, need a bit of discussion. And I want to try and break this down into identifying the item and thinking about the nuances of it. What are the little parts of it that actually make a difference? And then giving you some actionable items to walk away with and try and put into place in your own climbing and hopefully get up a harder grade, climb something better, get that project done. Right, let's start with number one. And this one is somewhat obvious. And I think people talk about it a reasonable amount, but I don't think necessarily everyone gets it and understands how much of a difference it makes. And that is shoe choice. Sure, you may be totally into Sportiva or you're a 5'10 or an unparalleled person and that's your shoe. But each range of shoes or each brand has multiple styles of shoe in their range. And this mass massively changes in terms of the heels that you get on those shoes, the toe shape, the edge of the rubber, how round is it? Is it a rounded edge? Is it a really sharp cut edge? How downturn are the shoes? What type of rubber are they using? Are they using different rubbers on the toe, the forefoot, the midsole and the heel? I, I know, for example, one arm parallel shoe has three different types of rubber on it. How tight are the shoes? and how stiff are the shoes from the heel through to the toe. All of these make a really big difference. And I see climbers out there stick to maybe one or two pairs of shoes, which worries me because it makes me think that people are going out, trying some shoes until they're comfortable and they quite like them. And then they're just going out and climbing on them and trying harder and harder projects, whether it's sport climbing, track climbing, bouldering. And then using that as their default, rather than spending the time to really experiment with the differences. And I'm a climber who uses their feet a lot. I haven't got the strongest fingers in the world. So I know how much the shoe, shoe choice makes a difference. And it's huge. There's some projects which I've tried in the past that I can't even touch in the wrong pair of shoes. I put the right shoe on and suddenly I can do it. That's how much difference. It feels like sometimes I'm two years worth of training away from doing a project and then I get the right shoes and it happens. So believe me, this makes a big difference. And I think if I was to give you a broad 
idea of the kind of action that I would take on this and what I've done over the years is I've really practiced my craft and gone climbing in a good three different types of shoes. So think about climbing regularly and experimenting your climbing in three different types of shoes. So that might be a really soft shoe. That might be a a really downturn aggressive shoe. And that might be a flat shoe, for example. So try and climb in every type of shoe and experiment that within the brand that you like. And then importantly, and this is one that I think is a little underappreciated, quite a lot of comp climbers are good at doing this, is try the hard stuff in three different fits of the shoe. So try really big and floppy, essentially, um, a shoe that's too big, one that's a perfect fit and is quite snug, almost like a tight street shoe, and then try one, which is ultra tight. Literally, you've got to put a plastic bag over your heel to get the shoe on. You will notice big differences in the performance. And by going through that process, and I know this is expensive and it takes a long time, so it's not something that you can rush, but I think it is a useful process, is you'll start to understand how a shoe actually performs in those three different styles or shapes of shoe, but also the fit that you get in the shoe. Because it's big, it really is, and I can't overstate this one. Number two, skin quality. Now, everyone is so different on this, but whether you've got the most perfect skin in the world or the worst skin in the world, ultra dry, ultra thin, skaty, glassy, wet, damp, whatever it might be, everyone has a spectrum under which they will classically hold their hands out in front of you and go, yeah, my skin's pretty good for me right now, or no, it's absolutely terrible. And skin quality has a big effect on the climbing that we do and is another underrated item, I think. Good skin is generally less painful, so you can concentrate on the performance and you're not getting distracted by that pain. Uh, there's definitely an element where if something's too painful, you won't be able to climb as hard as you want to or execute at your limit. And then secondly is that good skin typically has a better frictional quality to it. So you can adhere to the rock, the micro crystals, the grain of the rock better. And ultimately you'll get up that climb. And it also will affect the sweat levels that you'll have in your skin. So a much drier, harder tip will sweat less than a very, very thin and damp tip. Now, in terms of skin quality, I think there's the main factors for me are how dry your skin is, how thick your skin is, the quality of the cuticles around your nails, which comes down to this kind of pain element, and then also the general condition and smoothness of your skin. Because if you try and, or if you climb with skin, which is really rough, you've got old blisters, which are showing edges on the edge of your skin, it will catch uh, old splits as well. Um, and your skin quality will degrade a lot quicker when you're on the project. So getting the smoothness is a really worthwhile thing to do. You'll see people with sandpaper and working on a very fine-grained sandpaper to get the, the tips really, really smooth. So really key thing to get right. And the things that I think are important to do in terms of skin quality and what you'll see the elite do is one, get your skincare regime working and get it practiced and learn exactly what works for you. Takes time, get yourself some of the products, and play around with all of them. Secondly, with that, 
is try and play around with as many skincare products as possible. You have some drying agents like anti-hydral rhino skin. They don't work for everyone. Other people will use things like climb skin or they'll use a basic Nivea cream and it'll be much more of a, a hydrating cream. Everyone is quite different on this front. So don't just assume that your friend uses X products. That's going to work for you. Play around with this. It takes time and everyone's very unique on this front. And then lastly is don't waste poor skin days on your project. You'll set yourself back so much further going and trying something which is quite skin intensive. And then you just hack your skin up even more. It's easier to recover from moderately bad skin and will take just a couple more days and you can go back and try the project then than completely destroying it and bleeding through and going down to effectively zero layers in your skin. That can take a week plus to get back from. And the recovery in terms of the skin quality that comes back is a lot more hard to deal with. You have to do a higher quality of skincare to stop it going flaky and dry and again, breaking or splitting. Number three is humidity and wind speed. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but I have, is that in a lot of send videos that you'll see on the internet where people do their very hardest things, look at the trees and the bushes in the background. They're nearly always moving. And that's because a wind speed or a relatively high wind speed is most definitely an advantage in almost all cases. It tends to have the effect of lowering, lowering what feels like the relative humidity. And that coupled with the degree of actual humidity that you have in the air is a big effect in terms of the friction that you have. Lower humidity is better on the whole. And you'll find that some countries, some regions are much better for this. People complain a lot less about uh, their skin quality, the greasiness, the type of chalk they're using, etc. It can be a little hard on glassy skin, so that's something to be aware of. And in general, being windier over a totally still day is better, other than the fact that if you're operating in very cold climates, it can get very, very cold. So there's some things to be aware of in terms of warm-ups and staying warm, etc. But on the whole, you want to try and aim for things which have a, or aim for conditions when you try your projects that have lower humidity and a slightly higher wind speed above zero, that is. Now, my tactics for this are get good on your weather forecasting apps or websites. Most of the advanced ones, you can actually check the humidity levels, and these change throughout the day. So aim for a part of the day where you try your project at lower humidity. You'll be surprised at how effective this can be. It's particularly important on the coastline as well if you climb anything on the coastlines. Another one, and... It's somewhat controversial, but get yourself or play around with an electric fan. They are annoying and you've got to be careful how you use these in wilderness areas and how this fits with other people at the crag. So be really understanding and diplomatic of it. But again, it can have a significant effect. You know it does because you see people using these right at the top end and they've got those mobile electric fans and they're using them to dry their skin on their hands and then also holding them up to the holds themselves. Lastly, is learn the wind condition or the wind direction of the crags and the projects that you're trying. Because when you look at on the forecast, you can see whether the wind is blowing onto the crag or over the top of the crag. Again, it's going to make a big difference to when you're going to choose your project days and getting out climbing. Number four is a full warm up. And I, by full, 
I mean in caps lock full, capital F-U-L, a proper warm-up. That's your fingers, your core, especially the posterior chain. Way too many people are just going, core, that's my abs. I'll do some couple of front levers or I'll do some sit-ups or I'll do some lever raises at the crag off a portable fingerboard. Got to think about the posterior chain as well. So glutes, hamstrings, lower back, mid back, upper back to some extent as well. That's also really important, that core. In addition to that, flexibility in the warm-up. What happens if you've got a project which has a high degree of extension or high degree of contraction, power or strength, which is needed right at the limit of your reach of your knee, heel, elbow, arm, whatever it might be, you need to be able to get into those positions. You need to be able to execute strength and power in those positions. You need to be able to do it efficiently as well. You can't do that if you haven't got project-specific flexibility. So make sure you use that or deploy that in your warm-up. And then lastly is power. Too many people are not getting effectively warmed up for powerful movements in their warm-up. Fast pull-ups, fast push-ups, Fast TRX pulls or exercises of the crag are a great way to really get recruited and get your body into the mode where it can execute with speed. Now, to do this, I'd recommend that you develop a routine for all of these points that I've discussed. Fingers, core, flexibility and power and practice them because warm up routines actually become more effective and get better the more you practice them, funnily enough. And the more you practice them the more you'll have confidence in them and the more that you'll see results that come out of them at the long end. So get practicing. And then lastly, on your warm-up side of things, is get a bit more honed in on understanding the demands of your goal. Think about how your goal breaks down. Does it really need your fingers fully warmed up? What type of grips do you need warmed up? How much flexibility do you need for your goal? What type of flexibility? Where is it in your body? Really understand the demands of your goal and then tailor your warm up to that. Get detailed. It makes a big difference. Lastly, is visualization. Are you visualizing away from your location? So, you know, the night before, are you doing it every night in bed? Are you doing it when you sit on the sofa? Are you doing it when you close your eyes and have a little doze? And are you doing it on the day just before going on the project? Are you doing it at the crag? Are you doing it part of your warm-up? I think visualization is another thing which is so important, but also underrated in some senses because you can't see people doing it. They're doing it away from when you're hanging out with them. You can't tell that the person that who sat at the base of the crag closing their eyes, they might look like they're just having a little doze, but actually they're probably going through some kind of visualization exercise. I do this all the time and i've done it for years and years and most of the top climbers do the same thing so it's another very very important skill to develop but also has a big impact on performance a few tips of what i do is and what others do is can you visualize and think your way through your entire problem or route first one to try and achieve is can you visualize your entire crux sequence without breaking out from it and having a loss in concentration or getting distracted by something. The next step is to be able to do that for the entire route. 
or the entire boulder problem. It's actually surprisingly hard. And doing that exercise may tell you how developed this is for you. And then the next is, can you be inside and outside of your body whilst you're doing this exercise? So what I mean by this is when you're doing your visualization, can you imagine yourself inside your body or can you get outside and see your body moving up the rock and visualize that? Lastly, and this is the kind of cherry on the top, is can you visualize and imagine other factors like the light? Is it light, dark? Is it cloudy? What sounds are going on at the crag or at that indoor gym? The more you can create a really realistic and highly detailed description or experience within that visualization, the more honed in you get on that. And then you'll see better results out the back end in terms of performance on your project. So there you go. That's your first five of your 10 things that matter more than you think when it comes to climbing performance. I hope you've enjoyed those and found them useful. Don't forget these are actionable items. So you do need to do something about them rather than just listen to a podcast. And if you'd like to tune in and get the other five, those will be in a follow-up podcast on this channel. So we will see you again, hopefully very soon.